0: Beloved, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3 as we uh, continue our study in John's epistle, looking at uh, 1 John 3 and verse 3. Uh, before we dig into our study, let's go to our Lord in prayer and ask for his help for this time. Our great Lord and God, what uh, precious truths we have affirmed uh, through singing together in Psalms of of praise to you, Lord, you are glorious. And what glorious things are that you have ordained for those who you draw to yourself in saving faith through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord God, you give us such a glorious gift of love by giving us of the Savior, Jesus Christ, as our Lord, as our God, as our shepherd, and as our um, brother in a sense of inheritance lord god we just want to rejoice in you and lord I ask that you'd help these truths which we're to look at this morning resonate in our hearts by faith cause your spirit to work in our minds helping us to understand what you have written and lord god what you mean by what you have written and cause these truths by the power of your spirit lord god to, to really come alive in our lives for your glory it's in your name we pray Amen. Well, this morning, we're, as I mentioned, we're going to continue our study looking at 1 John 3, 3. Um, and really the, the, the end of kind of a grand parenthesis that, that John has written in verses 1 to 3. Looking at the hope of righteousness in the child of God. Now this morning, I, I want us to consider how our lives have been affected by even modern technology unless you've had your head buried in the sand somewhere or living out in the country without internet access you've undoubtedly noticed how technology changes us in some ways you might not have even considered specifically this morning i want to draw your attention to how technology has changed our expectations regarding the timing of things Um, Technology has, has changed our expectations regarding how quickly we can accomplish something. Thanks to GPS and navigation te- technologies like, like Google Maps, we are, now expect to be routed on the quickest way to, to driving to our destination. Even sometimes if you live in a, one of the bigger cities or driving through those, you can even get traffic updates and, and kind of be rerouted around the, the major snarls, or at least that's what they attempt to do. It often doesn't work. But that's the attempt, at least you know ahead of time. Um, But really, that changes our focus from from the journey to the destination. Our focus becomes simply get there in the shortest amount of time possible. Everything else is a waste of time until we get there. And that's that's how we often think about uh, journeys and destinations. Where often in the past, people would enjoy the journey... Even though they were traveling to a destination, the journey would be somewhat enjoyable. They would take stock of what, who they're driving by, and what they're driving by, and all that. Um, think too about how businesses like Amazon, through Amazon Prime, have changed our thinking regarding shopping. You know, with a few clicks of the mouse, you can expect reasonably to receive your online purchase within. Well, two days guaranteed, but they're changing that now to one day. Right? So, and even in some cases in the larger cities through drones and whatnot, they're changing that to hours from the time that you purchase something. Gone are the days where you have to like plan ahead for anything, it's just all right there at the click of a button, it's ready. Now, there are even newer technologies. For example, smart refrigerators. I don't know if any of you have put down the cash for one of those or not, but smart refrigerators to the introduction of smart foods will know what's in your refrigerator even without you taking stock of it. So when you're, for example, low on milk, it'll, it'll just place an order through the Internet for you, and that'll be either something you can pick up on the way home or deliver to your home without you having to bother with it. That's, that's where technology is is heading. Now, the technologies like this are 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 just, um, they're not evil and they're not good. They're just technologies. It's, it's what we do with them. And, and they're, not, they're not evil. I just want to point out that these are just some, some non-more examples of how our culture and times are changing us. While those things are, are benign in and of themselves, there's certainly nothing wrong with using these technologies. We must be aware that that type of thinking, the thinking that we can have something faster Better, with less effort, is detrimental to our spiritual growth. It it really is, beloved. We must be aware that the drive to do things quicker, arrive sooner, receive packages faster, and see greater results from less effort can bleed into our spiritual lives. We begin to look at spiritual growth as something that should occur rapidly, if not nearly instantaneously. We want the microwave sanctification, if you will. And we are tricked into thinking that it should happen really automatically without much effort, study, effort, planning, or patience, or discomfort on our part. And as I mentioned, this expectation is very detrimental to spiritual growth because when our sanctification doesn't match our expectation, we can grow discouraged, lose hope, and even stop trying. Those who are truly saved won't ultimately stop but, but you see that the, the, the great, there's a, a great recipe for burnout is when you have expectations that are unreale- unrealistic and then you never reach them. And that's what that is. Right? Our sanctification is not something by God's uh, plan that, that we can rush. But I believe this type of thinking impacts many of us, even in our own church. I, I believe that this type of thinking is what motivates us to sometimes complain about the lack of application, for example, in a pastor's sermon. Now, now hear me, I'm not making an argument that pastors should not apply the word of God. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, in James chapter 1, verse 22, God commands us that we do apply it. He says there, prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Additionally, the great commission that, that, that Christ gives us gives to his church, says to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to what? To observe all that I commanded you. So he's not just teaching them what he commanded, teaching them to observe. So therefore that requires application of that truth. So please, please understand that I am, I am most definitely not arguing against more application in a sermon what I am warning you against is the false idea that can somehow that somehow we can jump straight to application without uh, shortchanging the results. There are sermons or sermonettes or motivational uh, speeches like that uh, given in far too many churches. This, this type of thinking that somehow we can just jump to the application, pastor just skip the theology and tell me how to live, um, that kind of thinking is very detrimental to our spiritual growth. This is the type of thinking revealed in such comments like these. I, I just want to know how to, how to live my life. I, I'm not really interested in all those deep theological truths. Or perhaps you could put it a different way. Someone might say, well, I... I wish the sermon would be shorter. If the pastor would just skip to the application part and tell us what to do, the sermon could be much shorter. Well, beloved, we must guard ourselves from the false notion that spiritual growth can be obtained quickly or with a flash of genius or, a moment or, or and a moment of effort. Think about how Jesus prayed for our sanctification. Did he pray like this? Father, sanctify them instantaneously without them putting forth any effort or without them experiencing any discomfort. He could have. It would have been nice for us, us comfort seekers, Uh, put myself in that category too, if he would have done that. But he didn't. He prayed simply, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the sanctification is is practical holiness. He's praying for our practical holiness that comes through truth, which we could say is doctrine. Doctrine must be taught if we are going to be sanctified. The, The path of sanctification and practical righteousness goes through the winding streets of theology according to God's glorious plan, according to His glorious wisdom, God's plan is to thoroughly sanctify you by transforming your mind before he transforms your actions. Every faithful pastor recognizes this God-ordained pattern and feeds God's people God's truth. Not not just pious sounding abstracts of God's truth, but the whole of God's word. The word of God must be taught and understood before any God-honoring application and God-empowered sanctification occurs we we cannot shortcut this process so my goal in in teaching scripture is to help you apply it but you must understand the word of God so that it's not just the pastor saying that you should do something but you understand that it's God telling you to do something and the reasons why God isn't interested in that you just do the right things. He wants you to do the right things from the right motives. And the right motives won't occur without the transformation of your mind, without doctrine. Listen to someone uh, who is steps kind of outside our time. It's sometimes helpful to, to hear the perspective of someone who doesn't live in our time a generation or two ago. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very faithful pastor from England recognize the connection between doctrine and sanctification listen to the faithful doctor's words and i quote him the more i read the new testament the more i am impressed by the fact that every appeal for conduct and good living and behavior is always made in terms of our position the bible never asks us to do anything without reminding us first of all who we are you always get doctrine before practical ex- exhortation. Look at any epistle you like, and you will always find it. These men, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, first of all tell us, this is what you are as the result of the work of Christ. Therefore, and then they fill in the blank, it is never the other way around, unquote. Now, now what does this exhortation have to do with our study of 1 John 3? verses 1 to 3. It's a very critical part of it because notice that John follows this pattern. He has laid out for us in verses 1 and 2 doctrine about who we are and about who Christ is and about what's going to happen to us in the future. And in verse 3, we hit a verse where he begins to talk about some application. And it's important that we recognize that Recognize the doctrine in verses 1, one uh, and, and 2, at least, if not more. For example, in verse 1, we see the great love the Father has, has given us in calling us His children. We see the fact that we are the children of God, not we will become, but we are. We also see the fact in verse 2 that we aren't yet what we will be, and that we are not in our glorified state. We are not completely made like Christ yet, but we also see the doctrine that, that Jesus will return. And when he returns, we will see him as he is. And at that moment, when we see him as he is, all those who have faith in him will be made to be like him, made to be perfect, an instant transformation. That's what, beloved, we would all long for right now, to be done with sin, to be completely made like Christ. That is something that is promised to us in the future. So the Apostle John writes of these doctrines, and and this is just to mention a few of them, not to mention what we saw in verse 29, the key passage for the second kind of section of of 1 John, that that God is righteous and that everyone who um, is born of him practices righteousness. So when we come to verse 3, understand that John is not just jumping to application, he has He is moving to application on the basis of the doctrine that he has taught. And with that in mind, let's just uh, remind ourselves of the truths of verses 1 to 3 by reading them together. 1 John chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Beloved, understand, John is providing his readers with a glimpse of the hope of righteousness in the child of God, which provides assurance of salvation and the encouragement to pursue practical holiness. There are two parts of this. John is providing his readers with a glimpse of the hope of righteousness in the child of God, which provides not only the assurance of salvation, but also the encouragement to pursue practical holiness. You see, sometimes we think that the assurance of salvation would cause us to respond and say, oh, Let's go sin. If we're truly saved, we can live any way we want to. Well, to that person, I'd say you're not really saved if that's your attitude. Because sin has no place in the child of God, not any comfortable place. It's a reality of our lives here on earth, for we are not made perfect yet. But sin should never be something that is comfortable in our lives. If if assurance of salvation causes us to go, gives us license to sin... We have a false assurance. We are not truly saved. And, and John himself is going to say that. You're going to see that in verse 4 coming up when we get to talking about the practice of sin. Assurance of salvation, rightly understood, motivates us to pursue sanctification. And that's, what, that's where John is going with this. So just to take a step back and remind us of the hope of righteousness in the child of God. From verse 1, we saw that our hope of righteousness is based On God's wondrous love for us. Not something that we conjured up. It's what He did for us. Two, from verse two, our hope of righteousness is secured by God's future design for us. We see that if you're truly saved, if you are truly been born of Him, He is going to complete what He has begun. He is going to conform you completely to His image, the image of Jesus Christ. And that will occur when Jesus appears for the second time, We will see Him just as He is and we will be like Him. He will transform us. He will complete that work which He has begun. But what we're going to look at and see from this morning from verse 3 is that our hope of righteousness is vitally linked to God's current work in us. Our hope of righteousness is vitally linked to God's current work in us. And we see what He says there in verse 3. And everyone... Who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, in, in, to study this passage, I just, I just want to ask some questions this morning of the text, a bit like a, a Bible study. What is the source of the hope that John speaks of? Notice he says, And everyone who has this hope, Fixed on him. If uh, Your translation might be different, but the New American Standard uses the word fixed. It is actually inserts the word fixed right before on him, but it does so in italicized text, showing you that it is inserted by the translators. It, it's not really there. The idea is there. Who has this hope on him? So the source of our hope is the promises... The doctrines that God has promised to us, that John has highlighted for us in verses one and two, it is it is this hope, um, kind of hidden by you know English. Every language has its its weaknesses, and and one of the weaknesses of English is that sometimes it hides the truths that are very clear in the Greek, and and, and this it is that's the case in this particular verse. This isn't just, see, our English translation says everyone who has this hope. But in Greek, it actually says this, the hope, which doesn't, it sounds horrible in English, which is why the translators didn't translate it that way. But the point I mention this is because in the Greek there is a definite article. When a definite article is used, it's pointing to something very specific. This isn't just pie in the sky hope. This is the hope that is grounded on the doctrines of verses 1 and and 2. This is the hope that the Father has bestowed on us in, in his, his great love in calling us his children. This is the hope that Jesus will return. This is the hope that we will see Jesus just as he is. This is the hope that we will be like him when we see him. So it's a, it's a, it's a, this hope is founded upon the Lord, the, the Lord's promises. That's the source of our hope. Another question I'd like to ask of the text is this. What kind of hope is this? What kind of hope? When when John says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure, what kind of hope is this? Now up up to this point in this series of sermons on 1 John 3, I haven't taken time to define hope. I've just used it. But the time has come now to define what we mean by the word hope. As every pastor who is faithful to the Word of God understands, we must be careful to distinguish between the biblical understanding of hope from the common present-day use of the term. The modern usage inserts an idea of uncertainty into something. It's more like we want it to happen, but we're not sure if it really will happen. And, And we often use this term like if we're planning a picnic, we would say, oh, I hope it doesn't rain. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. We don't know. Sometimes the forecast calls for rain, and it doesn't. Sometimes it calls for sunshine, and it still rains. Um, growing up, it used, there used to be a joke in my family that if you want it to rain, just have the Rice family plan a picnic or an outing, and then it would rain. So my mom would often say that. Um, that wasn't always true, but uh, it was very often the case, it seemed like. So that's the modern usage of the word hope. Maybe, we, maybe, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. It's the idea too connected with um, you know, the power of positive thinking that if you, just, if you just want it bad enough, it'll happen. But even that doesn't work, as we know. Right? The power of positive thinking has no power at all, as I've mentioned in the past. If there's anything good that comes out of that, it's simply by the grace of God, not your ability to conjure up hope. The biblical usage inserts into this idea of, of our desire, of something we want to happen, it, in, it inserts the idea of a settled reality that just hasn't occurred yet. A settled reality. Um, it carries the idea of a confident expectation. And again, this, this expectation isn't, isn't based on the desire of the one who wants it. Or, or you could put it in the negative sense, we hope things don't happen. It's, it's not in us. As Donald Burdick explains, New Testament hope is a confident expectation. It is assurance concerning something that is yet future. This is far different from current employment of the term to express a, express a wish or desire that may or may not be realized. I to, to borrow that language, biblical hope will always be realized. It will always be realized. Another commentator, D. Edmund Hebert, explains it this way. He says, The word hope concerns the unseen future, but it does not imply any uncertainty or mere probability. Christian hope is assured of future realization because it is grounded in the person of Christ and His sure word. His sure word. That's why we can be so confident. It's God's sure word. And if it doesn't come to pass, then Christ is not God, and we are still dead in our trespasses and sins before God. We we are of all men to be pitied if, if Christ breaks even one of his promises. Now, the biblical concept of hope is related to faith. But even faith is not grounded just on nothing. We're given something to base our faith on. For example, Hebrews 11.1 points out that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's a conviction of things. It's a conviction that it will take place because God has promised it to take place. This This is not hope against hope, That it is not a a hope without any basis of expectation or fulfillment. No, this is a hope with a basis of expectation. It is a hope that confidently trusts in God to fulfill his promises and complete the work that he has begun. Uh, Beloved, I remind you that Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. Perfecter means completer. He not only begins the work, he completes it. You know, sometimes you see um, buildings that get started and never get finished. Sometimes my projects at home are like that. But God always finishes what he begins. He, he's not an incomplete architect or an incomplete builder. When he purposes to do something, he does it perfectly and completes the task that he has begun. Now let's ask another question. Who can legitimately claim this hope? Who can claim this hope? Is this just for everybody? Well, John uses a term there, everyone who. Everyone. Now, to us, we can just rush, again, rush by this phrase and not not appreciate what he's saying. So many religions have like this upper echelon of the religious elite. It's only the indoctrinated, or it's only for, say, the Pharisees or the Sadducees. The the hoi polloi, the common man, can't achieve it. John is really putting a spear into that kind of thinking because he's saying here, everyone, everyone who, he describes it, everyone who, who has this hope fixed on him. He fixed on him. Now, now, Notice the way that John writes this. He, does, he, he doesn't say everyone who hopes in Jesus. That's theologically true. But John makes his point a bit stronger by saying everyone who has this hope fixed on him. And literally, the Greek says, on him. This hope is on him. What does that give you the picture of? A foundation built upon something. What is that built upon? Upon him. So when, the, when our Bible says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that him is not referring to the person who has the hope, but on Christ. And some Bibles, like the New American Standard Bible, capitalize uh, the pronoun him to help you understand that. But it's speaking of Christ. It's speaking of Christ, who is our Savior. But the way that John writes this, everyone who has this hope, the way that he, the way that he writes it, reinforces the fact that this hope is a possession. It's a possession as well as a gift. It's what God has given to us by giving us these doctrines and the faith to believe in those doctrines. It also reinforces the fact that this hope is a constant reality, regardless of whether we subjectively feel hopeful or not. it it, It is an objective reality. And it also, the way that John writes this, also reinforces the fact that Jesus is our sure foundation of this hope. Now, notice, beloved, that he says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him. Some commentators uh, believe that John is pointing to the moment of salvation and our justification. But I don't think that's what he's pointing to here, as you'll see, and as the, as the contact will, context will help us understand. But it is related to it. Because the the phrase, everyone who has hope on him, we must realize that that hope has a starting place. We aren't born into this world as children of God. We aren't born into this world redeemed. That is something that happens to us later. That's why Jesus talks about the spiritual birth from above. It's not a physical birth. It's a spiritual birth. Our hope in Christ begins at the moment of our salvation, That's the moment of our justification. For example, this hope is spoken spoken about in John 3, 16. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You say, where is the word hope? The concept is there. Do you believe in Him, in Jesus Christ, that He died for your sins and that all who believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life? That's not a reality you see right away. That's something we hope for. What? Based on conviction. Conviction that what we have heard from God's word is the truth. Where does that conviction come from? It comes from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Right? You can't convince anybody that, that these scriptures are the word of God. You can show them truths, but you actually can't convince them. That conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one that works in our lives to convict us that the scriptures are true and trustworthy and believable. So the ideas of hope is certainly there. It's certainly there in Paul's words in Romans 10, 13, where Paul says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. We see the same kind of concept where Paul's saying it's not, it's not the religiously elite. It's not the, the, the ones who have been initiated into a super sect whoever, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul adds to that in Romans ten nine that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That, that hope is placed within us at the moment of salvation. And so, beloved, I just want to pause for a moment, knowing that not all in this room are genuinely saved, I want to ask you, will you believe? Do you have the hope of eternal salvation residing within you right now as your constant possession? To borrow Paul's words, I'm speaking as an ambassador for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through me. I I beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. His words are trustworthy and true. Beloved, this is the the beginning point of the hope that we have in Jesus. It begins at our salvation, but it doesn't end there. It's not only for justification. This this hope continues to work in our lives. And this ongoing work of hope in our lives is what John is pointing us to in verse 3. This hope Hoping on Him, hoping on Christ, is something that continues through the eternity, through the entirety of our lives until we see Jesus and until He completes that work in us. So, having hope on Him means to be trusting in Jesus Christ, the Savior, to complete what He has begun. Listen for a moment um, to the word, to the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. Um, through f- verse 20. The author has some very helpful comments that are related to this. He says, In the same way, sorry, In the same way, God, desiring to, to even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Listen how he uses that past tense. We have taken refuge. We who have taken refuge, that is, we've trusted in Christ, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So it's not just this hope isn't just meant as as our point of justification. It is meant to be something we look forward to and calls us onward to Christlikeness. And the author adds there in verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Notice that graphic language, anchor of the soul. It keeps us from wavering. It keeps us in the safe place where God wants us. It's an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Beloved, this hope that we have in Jesus is not just instrumental in our our justification, it is instrumental in our sanctification. John's use of the idea of having hope on Jesus... It is parallel with, with the author of Hebrews' idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus. We'll, we'll mention that, but that's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He's gonna, the author there is calling us to be done with sin, to, to put away sin. He's saying, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Well, in John's language, he's saying, have this hope. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. The next question we want to ask of this text is this. What difference does this hope make? What difference does this hope make? This hope of righteousness, beloved, has a purifying effect. That's that's what difference it makes. This hope of righteousness causes us to pursue sanctification. As I mentioned earlier, John wrote verses 1 and 2 to prepare the way for what he wanted to say in verse 3, to kind of prepare the way ...for the next test of faith that he's going to begin getting into in verse 4. But but what difference does this hope make? This hope causes those who possess it to purify themselves. Now, notice that John does not say he ought to purify himself. There's really no command here. He's just describing it. He is saying this. This is a characteristic of all those who have hope in Jesus Christ... Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's in the, that mood there is called the indicative. It's not an imperative. An imperative is the command. He's not commanding them to go do this. This is just his description of those who have their hope on Jesus. But understand, behind this indicative is the understanding that we will want to pursue this. John is using the indicative... But he is using the indicative as a way to spur us on and to encourage us to purify ourselves just as he is, just as Jesus is pure. That's what John is pointing us to. John is is stating stating a fact and at the same time using that fact to urge us to action. Both are true. He He who has this hope on Jesus purifies himself That's true. That's the indicative. But it's also true that he who has this hope on Jesus must be purifying himself. Why? Because Jesus said that his followers are to obey his commands. That whole process of applying or obedience to the commands of Christ is is the process of sanctification. And this is where the hope that we possess works in our lives to spur us on to become more like Jesus even before we see him. So understand what he's saying. He's given us the picture of this hope that you're presently a child of God, that you're not what you should be. Not yet. You're not yet there. But when Jesus returns, you will see him and you'll be made to be like him. So you know that's a completed work. That's something God is doing. And on the basis of that, what are you to do? Just sit back and let God? You know, there's that phrase, just let God and let go. You know, he's, he's going he's gonna to carry on that work. He's going to do it. I'm, I'm not, I don't have to do anything. That is such a sinful attitude. Whether, whether we talk about justification or whether we talk about sanctification, both of those require your participation but are completely dependent upon God to carry them out. And here's what I mean by that. Who saved you? God saved you. But does God save everyone? He doesn't. He saves those who exercise what? Faith. So your faith was an instrument in your salvation. But Scripture says even that faith isn't of yourself, so that no man can boast. It's a gift of God. But yet faith is necessary. So you see, in a a mysterious way, your faith is necessary to your salvation. It's not a work. It's a gift. It's not of you. So God gets the credit you're called to exercise faith, and anybody who doesn't exercise faith will be judged for their disobedience. They will be judged because God told them to exercise faith and to repent of their sins and believe in Him. But in talking about our sanctification, it's, it's very, very similar. God commands us to carry out, to pursue Christ's likeness. So that's our response to His truth. At the same time, we're completely dependent upon Him for that fruit for that effort to produce any kind of fruit at all. So so this gets us to the heart of what we want to talk about. Probably as you read this, you're wondering, what does it mean? The whole concept of of purifying himself. How do we purify himself? What in the world is John talking about? Well, the word purify means to cleanse from defilement. And it is used of, of purifying either ceremonially or morally. Commentator Stephen Smalley rightly explains that in 1 John 3, 3, the setting obviously demands that the word purify should be interpreted in the moral sense. Because the the context shows, like in verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And then in verse 29, you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. This is talking about a a moral um, cleanliness or moral purity. And Stephen Smalley continues his explanation by saying that the hope of being like Christ in the end um, should inspire Christ-like behavior even now. And that gets to the heart of what John is saying. He says, purify himself. How do we purify ourselves? Well, first, let's understand what it doesn't mean. And again, I've hinted at this, but we need to state it clearly. Clearly. To purify yourself doesn't mean that our sanctification is an action that is utterly on our own effort. It it, it's not in our own effort. This this does not mean that our sanctification is something that we can merely do in mechanical terms, that is in the flesh. Uh, Paul warns us against this type of thinking in Galatians chapter three, verses two and three. Galatians three verses two and three warn us against this idea. There Paul says this. And speaking to the Galatians, he says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's asking a a question that they know the answer to. It's a rhetorical question almost. Did you receive the Spirit by works or by faith? Oh, by faith, of course, Paul. We understand that. You taught us that clearly. Then his follow-up question is this. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So he's saying the work of sanctification is is not pursued by the flesh. This isn't about rules. This is why legalism always fails. Because legalism is just worried about the do's and the do nots. God isn't worried about the do's and do nots. The do's and do nots will fall in place rightly when we think rightly. And when our minds are transformed by the word of God. So sanctification isn't something that you can just go do in the flesh, have your checklist, and as long as you do those things every day, then you're sanctified. No, it doesn't work that way. It's not a recipe. What does, what does purifying ourselves mean? Well, it means to purify himself means, in this context, to pursue practical holiness and dependency upon God's work in you. Let me say it again. To purify himself means, in this context to pursue practical holiness in dependency upon God's work in you. Where did John learn this from? Jesus. Remember John 15? Jesus uses the analogy of the vine where he says that I am the vine, you are the branches. And he he says there, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do what? Something? Nothing. Nothing. You can accomplish nothing towards your sanctification if you are not united with Christ and dependent upon Him. That's what he's saying. Nothing. You can't improve it. You can't do it. You're dead. And the works that he's talking about are more than just his sanctification, but they for sure include that so, for those who are seeking to be sanctified, we must be united, in the, one, with the vine. We must be in the vine by faith in Jesus Christ. So, since you are a child of God, since you know that God is righteous, and when I say that you are a child of God, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of those that, that here this morning who have exercised saving faith. If you have not exercised saving faith, I am not speaking to you. Um, though that certainly could be applied if you trust in faith in Jesus Christ, even today. But for those who have exercised saving faith, think about this. You are a child of God, and you know that God is righteous, and you know that Jesus will complete what he has begun in you, and you know that you will be made to be like Jesus when you see him. So pursue that Christlikeness even now. That, that's what John is urging us to, and he's going to get more specific in the verses to follow. But, beloved, this is in perfect alignment with with other passages of Scripture. For example, uh, listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not talking about justification there. Justification doesn't come by works. What he's talking about is sanctification, which is part of salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he doesn't say, go pursue it just because I told you so or, or by a recipe. He says, in verse 13, he says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, our efforts towards sanctification would fall completely flat if God were not at work in our lives. We are completely dependent upon him. At the same time, he urges us to action to apply scripture. This is similar to Peter's words. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, tell us this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what is John calling us to when, he's, when he talks about purifying himself? He's talking about the process of becoming holy in a practical sense. It is practical holiness that he's talking about. Paul kind of summarizes it nicely and concisely in one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh... And spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's really a nice like capstone, if you want to just summarize it all down. Based on these promises, we are to cleanse ourselves from from all defilement of flesh and spirit. That's the practical holiness, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's, It's seeing that as a child of God, I want to live like a child of God. If you claim to be a child of God... But you want to pursue sin, and that's a regular pattern of your life. John's going to have some very um, helpful but strong words for you later. That you are not genuinely a child of God. A biblical view of sanctification, beloved, requires active dependency upon God. Active dependency upon Him. Listen to Spurgeon's words as he explained it. Albeit sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit, yet it is equally true, and this must Ever bear in mind that the Holy Spirit makes us active agents in our own sanctification. Listen to his words. Active agents in our own sanctification. Again, our efforts alone accomplish nothing. We are called to obedience to pursue sanctification. And in obedience to that, the Lord rewards us and causes us to grow. So to purify ourselves means to repent of sins in our lives. You know, to talk about how do we do this. How do we uh, pursue holiness? How do we pursue sanctification? As I mentioned, you study doctrine. You study the scriptures. You get to know Jesus. That's where our hope is fixed on. Our hope is fixed on him, as the author of Hebrews says, Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and run with endurance the race set before us, setting aside the sins which so easily entangle us and encumber us. So we must realize that that the Word of God is is paramount to our sanctification. You must study the Word of God. To to purify ourselves or to grow in sanctification requires that we be students of the Word of God. You may not be a reader. You don't have to be. But you must be a student of the Word of God. In our day and age, there is absolutely no excuse uh, for not knowing the Word of God. There are so many... um, sound um, pastors whose sermons are available on the internet that, that you, you, while you're doing other things you can be listening to these and informing your mind. Right? Like I said, you, you may not be a reader. You don't have to be a reader. But you're still called to be a student of the word of God because that is key to your sanctification. You, you, can't, you can't grow in sanctification unless you know the word of God and learn the word of God. And as we learn them, as we learn the word of God, then we repent of the sins that God brings to our, to our knowledge. When he convicts us of sin, we repent of them. Some, are, some of our sins are gross and obvious. And, and in the Lord's grace, sometimes He at our moment of salvation, he takes the desire for those sins away completely at our salvation. And at other times, he doesn't take those desires away completely because he wants us to exercise faith and obedience and turning away from those desires And, beloved, through time and obedience and dependency upon them, he will change your appetite where the things that you once loved, you hate. But you have to trust the Lord to do that work, be it instantaneously or be it slowly. That's the Lord's business. So we purify ourselves means repent of sins, whether they're great sins from a human perspective or lesser sins, whether they're obvious sins or hidden sins. We must not let sin have a place in our life. Again, I, I mentioned to you that we're not perfected yet. John says that. We are not yet who we are. What we, what we, who we are has not yet been manifested, is, is the way that he puts it. Uh, but be that as it may, sin should never be at home in our life. It should never be at home. What I mean by that is it shouldn't be comfortable that when we sin... It should make us uncomfortable. It should bring conviction to your conscience. You should feel bad when you sin. That is a blessing from God. Because through that, through your active conscience, he is calling you to repentance, and forgiveness comes through repentance. See, the world wants to do away with feeling bad, with the, with the conscience. But the conscience is a gift from the Lord To to call us, to convict us of sin and call us to him. To call us to repentance from our sins. So have as a theme of your life. To be doing away with sin. Knowing that in this life you won't reach perfection until you see him. But let the knowledge that, that that process will be perfected. Allow that hope to cause you to greater urgency and greater effort here on earth in obedience to him. And notice that John says that everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. And again, referring to Christ. So the the purity that the Lord is going to bring about at the end of this is perfect purity, where sin isn't home in our life. In fact, sin won't even be part of our life then. But that is what we should long for, Jesus gives us an example to follow and provides a way for us through his death and resurrection for us to be united with God, to be children of God and to follow him. We are to run a race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And he says, having fixed our eyes on Jesus, we are to be done with those sins. Lay those sins aside, which, which so easily entangle us. And pursue the race. Pursue that, the becoming Christ like Christ. To use John's terminology, purify yourself. So, kind of returning to where we started. With the concept of wanting to grow quickly. And wanting to grow without the hard work of studying doctrine. Let me again return to Lloyd-Jones' comments. He says this, So the real trouble with most Christian people is not so much in the realm of their conduct and practice as in the realm of their belief. And that is why the church, whenever she puts too much emphasis upon conduct and behavior and ethics, always leads eventually to a state and a condition in which Christian people fail most of all in that respect. This is a very subtle matter. Of course, the tendency is for people to argue like this. Ah, they say, there is not much point in talking to us about doctrine. You have to remind people of their practical duty. So holiness teaching, not infrequently, becomes repetition of certain duties which we are to carry out. Now, I agree that we have to do these things. But I say that the ultimate way of carrying out these duties and really practicing these things is to have such a grasp and understanding of the doctrine that the practice becomes inevitable. That's that last phrase. To have such a grasp and understanding of the doctrine that the practice becomes inevitable. That is the doctrine of who Christ is and what he wants for us. It's just inevitable. It's God's work in us. And we must devour doctrine. And if you don't have an appetite for doctrine, that's okay. Learn. And ask God to give you that appetite. He will do it. He wants this for you. This is his will for you. Some people struggle over what the will of God is. This this is one you shouldn't struggle over. It's his will that you devour his word. So work at it. to Develop that appetite. And he will give that to you. And remember that his his word is the tool of your sanctification. Spurgeon said this. He said, the truth is the sanctifier. And if we do not hear or read the truth, we shall not grow in sanctification. We only progress in sound living as we progress in sound understanding. Unquote. Let us be students of the word. Let us be people who pursue god's word pursue understanding of god's word and pursue the obedience to the word of god to all things the lord has commanded so that we might grow to be more like him that we might grow to purify ourselves just as our savior is pure Uh, beloved contemplate these uh, grand and glorious truths the lord has given us in his word let's pray together our lord god we want to just exalt you we want to praise you and thank you Number one, for giving us salvation. Lord, we weren't worthy of salvation. We didn't deserve salvation. But you have worked in our lives, to to, to those who are here this morning who exercise saving faith, you have worked in our lives to bring us the newness of life, to open our eyes to our sins and our offense against you, to open our eyes to the wonder of the Savior and behold Him and to believe in Him and to hope in Him. And Lord, I just ask that you will work in us to help us to allow this hope in Christ to motivate us to pursue sanctification, to purify ourselves just as our Savior is pure. And Lord, for those who are here this morning who haven't trusted in you, who haven't placed their faith in you, not just saying a phrase, but actually trust you as their Savior, I just pray that you'll use these words in in their lives, that you would drive these truths deep into them, into their soul, and uh, Lord, just cause them to believe them, give them hope, and bring them uh, newness of life. Open their eyes that they may behold their Savior and believe unto him for salvation. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray this, for the, the good of his people that we pray this, and for the glory of God that we pray this. You know mean? we ask this. Amen.